Okay, well, this is going to be an Ask Me Anything podcast. I had an interview with Mariam Namazi that got postponed. That will happen probably in a few weeks. And I'm looking forward to that. And so I've got your questions here coming in from Twitter and email. Actually, the first one is on something related to Mariam Namazi. I'll just uh, I'll deal with that only to postpone it, really. But m- many of you asked what I thought about the, uh, quote, open letter to Sam Harris that Ina at Nice Mangoes wrote, alleging that Douglas Murray is a bigot. And um, Mariam actually circulated that on Twitter. That's how I noticed it. So Ina, who's this blogger who you who many of you probably know, wrote an open letter to Ben Affleck after my collision with him. She's a, an ex-Muslim who um, has made some very uh, nice noises on this topic. But she attacks Douglas in this letter as a bigot and um, claims that his views about immigration and the refugee crisis are bigoted. I don't know if there's anything else she believes that uh, constitutes a sign of his bigotry. And a, a few other people like um, Atticus Amber... Uh, another person I notice on Twitter, have raised a more general concern about taking care not to provide far-right bigots cover in how we talk about Islam and Islamism. And this was also the subject of Ina's letter to me. I definitely share the general concern that we not provide cover for bigots, but I, I really reject this claim about Douglas. I don't think Douglas is a bigot. I don't think anything he said in my discussion with him on my podcast Uh, suggests that he is. I really think his heart and mind are in the right place. Uh, That doesn't mean you necessarily agree with his views about immigration, but I think I'll, let me just table this now because I I will get into this in depth when I speak with Mariam Namazi because she substantially shares Ina's views, as far as I can tell. In that case, a retweet, I think, did equal an endorsement. And, And there's a lot to talk about with Mariam, specifically on the topic of immigration in Europe, because she is for open borders. Uh, which is not a position I share. And in that context, I'll be happy to defend Douglas, who I think is just genuinely afraid about the destruction of European culture. And one doesn't need to be a bigot in order to worry about that. So um, to be continued on that topic. Question number two, how should we differentiate labels used for clarity and labels used in a way that encourages tribalism? This comes from Maggie, whose Twitter handle is a simple hedonist. Uh, And this is related to another question I got about the term regressive leftist. Actually, several people worried that um, this is being applied almost at random to people who we don't like and in a very tribal way. Um, You know, I think labels have to be used carefully and accurately. And I I, I do think people are using regressive leftist in a way that doesn't totally track its intended meaning. I would reserve it for any so-called liberal who is either explicitly or tacitly taking the side of highly illiberal people, very likely in the Muslim community, based on political correctness or a misplaced concern about racism. So the classic case of this you see with people like Glenn Greenwald, uh, who just reflexively, it seems, aligns with theocrats protecting them from criticism and labeling anyone who would criticize their worldview as a bigot or a racist. So it's, um, it's on that specific point and I, where you have people who should be committed and in fact are committed in every other mode of life to 
free speech and gay rights and the rights of women, but who can't follow those commitments to their logical conclusion in the presence of usually Muslim intolerance. And the reason for that is simple. There's, there's this underlying software routine they're running on their brains, which one privileges a concern about bigotry and racism over everything else. And two, in the foreign policy domain, they more or less blame everything that's wrong with the world on the West and on colonialism and on U.S. foreign policy in particular. And so you have those two commitments aligning to make any moral clarity on the question of, let's say, how women are treated in Muslim societies really difficult to attain. So that's, that's where I would say we should reserve the use of regressive left or regressive leftist. The person who is, in fact, a liberal, except where liberalism really is needed at this moment to protect the most vulnerable people in the most intolerant communities on earth. Okay, next question. What about the idea of free won't as opposed to free will? This comes from Matthew Hentrich. Um, Free won't is this idea that I believe Michael Shermer used in his recent book, The Moral Arc, but it comes from Benjamin Labette. And I'm sorry, I never know whether he pronounced his name Benjamin Labet or Benjamin Labette. He's um, no longer alive uh, to, to consult, and I only ever see it written. But um, I'm going to go with Labette. Benjamin Labette, who famously gave us some early neurophysiological results on the topic of free will using EEG, and who showed that you could predict a person's motor response some hundreds of milliseconds, uh, you know, up to half a second before they were consciously aware of having intended to do something. Uh, he then came forward with this idea of free won't, that, that though free will was difficult to justify in light of these results, he thought that we have veto power and could cancel an action at the last minute, and that this offered some freedom. And I believe he published this first in the Journal of Consciousness Studies. I would have to look, but I recall reading a paper from him on this topic. Uh, this never made any sense at all to me, because whatever the neurological precursors are of the veto, those too are being kindled and made effective by processes which no one is conscious of. Now, I don't think Labette ever did an experiment looking for uh, the timing difference there between when one is conscious of one's veto and when it's actually kindled. But surely there's a time difference there. And again, even if there weren't, this is often a misunderstanding about my argument against free will. It's not just that there's a time difference. It's not just that there is a period where neurophysiologically we can detect an intention or a motor plan, and then this only becomes conscious some hundreds of milliseconds later. Even if we were conscious at the first instant of this plan arising in the brain, or of the veto arising in the brain, its mere arising in that moment is also inscrutable. It's also compatible with a total lack of free will. The time lag is slightly more inconvenient for anyone who wants to argue for free will, because what it demonstrates is that there is a period where you still think you are free to make up your mind, where you still think you're, you are making up your mind, where you still think you have not decided what you will do, and yet what you will do is, in a very real sense, determined by the state of your brain at that moment. And this must be true 
to some degree with any veto of a motor plan. Uh, but again, uh, you know, I, I think in a deep sense, the illusoriness of free will is not dependent on any gap there between the arising of the intention and its conscious execution. So uh, I hope that was clear. I don't think free won't gives you any more freedom than the uh, more common notion of free will. But it, of course, it's also a fact about the human mind. We veto various intentions from time to time. We intend to do something. We're about to reach for it. We're about to say something. And then we think better of it and we cancel that plan. But again, the, the moments where you do that, just pay attention. That is inscrutable. You can't actually account for why you do it in that moment or, or why it's effective in that moment, why you do it precisely at the moment you do do it. I mean, it's all being pushed forward into consciousness by processes of which you are not conscious and which you did not bring into being. I think there's another question about free will coming up and Perhaps I'll go over that ground again for anyone who's mystified. Many of you are asking me, why on earth am I voting or planning to vote for Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders? Um, well, it's not for any deep conviction about Clinton's integrity or honesty. I, I share the common perception of her as a political opportunist. Uh, I think she really wants to be president. I don't doubt that she also wants to live in a nice world and help people, but if you get one thing from the Clintons, it is their desire to be in power and on the top of the mountain. And uh, there is a basic insincerity there. There's a endless appetite for political calculation in place of obvious candor. And uh, it, it is definitely grating, and it doesn't inspire trust. If you ever heard her trying not to admit that she had changed her mind about gay marriage in an interview with Terry Gross on Fresh Air. I think this happened about two years ago. Uh, you'll, you'll see everything that's wrong with her approach to communicating the workings of her own mind. It's a, the most excruciating five minutes of radio I can remember hearing, where she's becoming more and more defensive, more and more irate that Terry would suggest that she had changed her mind on this topic, whereas she had actually changed her mind on the topic. It's just uh, unbelievable. But she's changed her mind to the right position on that topic. And I think she's, you know, despite the fact that she will say that ISIS has nothing to do with Islam and that Islam is a religion of peace, and she will sound like a fairly delusional person when talking about the conflict in the Middle East, I'm reasonably confident that she understands what is actually going on there and that she's one of the grown-ups who will be able to respond to crises there in an intelligent way. I imagine she will continue Obama's policies to some significant degree. I can't claim to know that about Bernie Sanders. I don't think he has thought about foreign policy very much. He certainly hasn't said much about it. The little he has said makes me worry that he's been uh, somewhat infected by... Noam Chomsky's worldview, which I think is the moral black hole swallowing everything on the left side of the political spectrum. So I, I don't actually know whether we can trust Sanders to be wise on what I consider the most crucial question of foreign policy, which is our fight against global jihadism. And there are many other questions where I would expect Hillary to be far more seasoned and smarter, frankly, 
on foreign policy, whether it's with Russia or China or any other hard case. I agree that the influence of money in politics and wealth inequality, these are huge issues that we have to get our hands around. I suspect that the difference between Clinton and Sanders on those topics is not so much a matter of what they want to accomplish, but I think Sanders is making promises he can't possibly keep there. I mean, he's, he's clearly an idealist, and his idealism will be smashed if he was ever in office having to deal with Congress. So I, I, think, the, I think these are empty promises, albeit revolutionary ones, that he's making on those topics. But most important, far more important than anything I have just said, is the fact that I think Sanders cannot get elected in the general election. Now, I know this will raise the ire of all of his fans who are aware of national polls where he's beating Ted Cruz, for instance, and Hillary isn't. But Sanders has not been hammered for the better part of a year by the Republicans uh, because he's not been a plausible candidate until now. If he were the Democratic nominee, a billion-dollar apparatus on the Republican side would do nothing but emphasize his identity as a socialist, right? There is no way this country is electing somebody who has to nuance the term socialism in a general election. Uh, it's worse than being an atheist at this moment. It's not the only strike against him, but I think it's a devastating one. So I think nominating Sanders would be to virtually guarantee a Republican victory in a year where the Republican candidates are both less sane and less competent than usual. There's just no reason for the Democrats to lose this election. And I think it would be terrible if they did. I think the prospect of having Cruz or Trump as president is um, an extraordinarily scary one for different reasons in each case. But I think the only grown-up in sight here is Clinton. And that doesn't mean I don't have great reservations about her. But I think she's smart and competent and knows how to compromise so as to get some things done in government. And um, I certainly can't say that about Sanders across the board. So you know, take that as a tepid endorsement of necessity for Clinton. But that's why I've said what I've said about uh, Hillary versus Bernie. Next question. Uh, there were several questions about Noam Chomsky's interview with Mehdi Hassan on Al Jazeera, where uh, Chomsky uh, actually greenwalded me to some degree, which is amusing. Uh, he claimed that I'm someone who specializes in hysterical, slanderous charges against people he doesn't like. Um, I'd love to know where I'm guilty of that. If I've ever said anything inaccurate that is slanderous against the people I don't like, uh, I wish he would point it out. In our email exchange, he hurled this charge at me, but the substance of his charge amounted to a pedantic and evasive distinction without a difference. I had said that he never had considered the intentions of the United States versus those of her enemies, uh, and he insisted that he had considered them, and it was a baseless slander for me to suggest otherwise, but he totally disregarded the significance of intention, discounted it, said you can't possibly know intentions because people lie about them, and at one point even inverted their significance, suggesting that non-intending harm made one somehow more culpable for evil than intending it. It struck me as a fairly crazy view, but I was eager to talk about it. 
And in the end, I couldn't figure out what his specific view was, apart from the fact that it was absolutely clear that it was different from mine in precisely the way that I said it was. He believes that considering intentions in cases like this is a sign of moral confusion, whereas I believe, in certain cases, it is the only difference between good and evil, because good people can create immense harm by accident, and evil people can sometimes do conventionally good things, seemingly good things, in an effort to do some larger harm, right, if they're manipulating people. Or they can also just do good things by accident, right? If, if a man kicks a puppy in the street and unbeknownst to him, he actually kicks it out of the way of a passing car and saves its life inadvertently, the effects of that isolated action are good, but we wouldn't call him a good person. He was kicking puppies for the fun of it. I mean, this is moral philosophy 101. Chomsky can't seem to get his head around it. And in this interview with Mehdi Hassan, when asked to rank the respective evils in the world, he comes right out and says that the U.S. and Britain are off the charts and the most evil regimes in how they've behaved on the world stage. Uh, now, I think that is a frankly crazy point of view. It's a point of view you can only arrive at by totally disregarding the intentions of our governments, the kind of world we want to build what we would do if we had even more power, and the intentions of our enemies. In this case, it was the Islamic State that was being talked about. So um, I don't want to go over this ground again. I think you guys know how I think intention functions here. Intention is the only guide to what someone's going to do next, right? It's the only guide to what they will do if they have the power to do it. That's why intentions are morally important. That's why there's a huge difference between the person who injures you by accident and feels sorry over it and the person who injured you intentionally and wants to do you further harm in the future. The injury could be the same. The only difference, and it's an enormous one, is the intention behind the action. So Chomsky seems to simply count the bodies. And, um, you know, this is just a crazy thing to do. Just, just think of World War II. Someone might have suggested this analogy to me on Twitter or by email, and I think it's a good one. If you're just going by body count, right, well, more Germans died than Americans in World War II, right? So you look at what we did, and you look at what the Germans did, and with respect to the conflict between the U.S. and the Third Reich, well, the U.S. looks worse. We killed more Germans, right? I guess we're morally worse than the Nazis there. Does that make any sense to anyone? The, the importance of intention is obvious because you, our intentions were revealed once we won that war. What did we do to Germany? We rebuilt Germany. It would have been fairly different if we had conquered Germany only to then go in and rape all the women, enslave all the children, and kill all the men, right? That's a rather big difference. And you would have seen that difference had we intended to behave that way. Chomsky ignores all this. And it's just, it's mind-boggling to me that anyone considers his views on this topic morally sane, much less important to consider. Uh, now, is that a slanderous charge against him? I don't think so. I listened to the whole interview with Mehdi Hassan. He said many other things that uh, were less crazy than that. Uh, and he said a fair amount that was just as crazy. 
He claims to be even more concerned about jihadism than I am, but he purports to be drilling down to its root cause, which, as was obvious from the context, he believes is U.S. foreign policy. We created global jihadism, according to Chomsky. Okay, well, good luck with that. My analysis of the roots of jihadism can fully absorb the reality of blowback, the fact that we funded al-Qaeda against the Soviets. Did we create the doctrine of jihad? Have we created a belief in martyrdom and paradise? Uh, Are we responsible for the fact that tomorrow morning some bright guy in London or Antwerp or Paris or Brooklyn is going to wake up and decide to fight for ISIS? No. The real answer to the riddle of jihadism is both simpler and more complicated than what Chomsky is alleging. And his emphasis is just all wrong and reliably wrong on this topic, as is the emphasis of everyone influenced by him. It seems to me no question that Chomsky is the godfather of the regressive left. If responsibility for this moral confusion and political masochism can be laid on anyone's head, it's Chomsky's. Uh, And that's why I would have loved to have had a real conversation with him on this topic. Because if he's misunderstood, well, then I would like to cease to misunderstand him. But um, unfortunately, I think he's understood all too well, and uh, it's time people stopped listening to him. Next question. What was the most unexpected and or remarkable audience reaction during your recent tour of Australia with Majid? And this came from someone named Good Life Decoder on Twitter. Most unexpected or remarkable audience reaction. Uh, Well, first, let me say I, I loved meeting you all in Australia, those of you I met. Uh, I feel a, I need to apologize for a couple of things. Uh, one is my jet lag. I, I was just hammered by jet lag there. And though I attempted to rally, um, I don't think I was fooling anyone. It's just, um, it is what it is. But I, uh, I was uh, pretty tired at each of those events. And uh, some of you noticed that. Majid and I had a good laugh in the um, one of the book signing lines. I think no less than five people came up to me, and you know, Majid was sitting right next to me. We're both signing books. No less than five people came up and said, man, you look exhausted. And uh, one person came up and said, just don't die, right? So Majid, uh, for the rest of the trip, Majid kept turning to me and saying, man, you look exhausted. So uh, uh, that and my, uh, my having said that I'm not a fan of hip-hop got me trolled endlessly by Majid and the, um, the other organizers of that trip. Anyway, despite jet lag, we had a great time, and Majid was the the highlight of those events. A few other things to know about that. One is that that every single Muslim group invited to those events declined, and uh, quite memorably, the um, Australian Muslim Students Association, I don't know how big that is, I might have that name slightly wrong, but some Islamic student group in Australia declared that Majid was not welcome in Australia. And uh, to see Majid's shunning by the Muslim community there was um, fairly sobering, given how reasonable and intelligent Majid is. Uh, But the the most surprising audience reaction, actually one person came up at the book signing from Pakistan and said to me, uh, not to Majid, which was surprising, that I I really should never doubt that my message is being heard even among 
religious conservatives in Pakistan. He had been a devout Muslim, and my YouTube videos, apparently, really got through to him. And he was now a non-believer and quite happy to be out of the closet, and I think he was living in Australia now, but he watched my YouTube videos in Pakistan. That seems like a, an especially heavy lift uh, for me, and when I, I, I must say that when I put out books and videos and podcasts, I'm rarely thinking that someone in a truly conservative context in a place like Pakistan is being successfully reached by them. I know there are atheists and closeted secularists in countries like Pakistan who listen to this podcast and watch YouTube videos because I hear from these people, but I, I rarely picture actually reaching someone who is devout and changing their mind in that context. So that's that was fantastic to hear, and I don't recall your name, but it was great to meet you. So yeah, I think that was the most that was the moment of uh, most gratifying surprise from the trip. But it was great to travel with Majid, and uh, I really enjoyed Australia, and hope to go back in the not too distant future. One other thing I I should say about Australia is that I, I while many people seem to love the events, I did hear some complaints about the format that it was these were on stage interviews. Uh, so that I, I didn't give a proper talk. I just came on stage and was interviewed by different people in, in the different cities. And there's a strength to that format, uh, but there's, there's also an obvious weakness. The weakness is I don't prepare anything beforehand. I don't know what questions I'm going to be asked. I haven't prepared a lecture. Uh, I certainly haven't prepared slides. So it's just a conversation. And so I, I am at the mercy of whatever I get asked. And... Um, it's all extemporaneous, and I can wind up saying many things that you have all heard before, depending on what gets asked. And so that's a, um, I think some of you are not a fan of that format. I didn't dictate that format for the Australia tour. In fact, Think Inc. only does events in that format. They want conversations between some interviewer and the person they're touring. And you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson and Cornel West and other people who preceded me in that speaker series engage the same format. You know, I, I go both ways on, on that. Sometimes onstage interviews really work, sometimes they don't. But it's a, um, I acknowledge there is a difference there, and you, you're not getting my most polished treatments of specific topics that are foremost on my mind at that moment. You're getting my answer to whatever gets asked in the moment, which is precisely what you're getting in this podcast. So take it or leave it. Next question. Which misrepresentation of your views are you most tired of defending? This is from Amir Pars. I think it would have to be the nuclear first strike that I allegedly want to execute on the entire Muslim world. Yeah, that's, that's the most depressing because I saw it spread and I was aware of doing nothing about it. I just didn't see the point of answering this charge. It was so stupid. And really, it was engineered by one person, Chris Hedges, just went on his book tour and shouted this from the rooftops, and it stuck. So um, yeah, that's, that's the most boring one, I believe. What does agency mean in the context of free will? Is the difference between involuntary and voluntary action only an indication of future behavior? And this is from Oliver Lyons Hartman. This is a good question. My disavowal of free will is not a denial 
of there being a difference between voluntary and involuntary action. Clearly, there's a difference between what you intentionally do and what you do by reflex or unconsciously. And there are many different ways to see this difference. I mean, one is that voluntary action is something you can cease to do voluntarily or in response to some disincentive. If someone says, listen, I'm going to fine you $100 if you park in that space again, well, then you can decide not to park in that space again. If you helplessly park your car there again because you can't do otherwise, well, then that's, that's a very different phenomenology. And you, we would probably take you to a neurologist at that point. So there's a difference between involuntary and voluntary action. And as the questioner asks, it does indicate, insofar as it reveals intention, it does indicate something different about future behavior, very likely. The person who voluntarily mistreats people because it's an expression of his actual intentions toward others, well, then that's the kind of person who it's probably not safe to be around in the future. Whereas the person who's doing it unwittingly or by accident uh, and who has no such intention to harm others, uh, well, then the moment their mistake is pointed out to them, they're the sort of person you can be around safely. So it matters what is behind actions. Not all actions are equivalent, even if they cause equivalent harm, because voluntary and involuntary or purposeful and accidental actions reveal something quite different about what a person is attempting to do in the world and what they're likely to do in the future. So I think the, the, the distinction between voluntary and involuntary action is an important one, but um, it's not one that requires a belief in free will to describe. It's just there, there are things we, we do based on intentions or associated with intentions that align with our goals and desires and consciously held purposes. And there are things that, that we do as a kind of automaticity or by accident or in ways that are haphazard, that don't reveal very much about us. It's when you trip over something on the sidewalk, that doesn't say anything about your goals in life, right? Experientially, there are many differences between voluntary and involuntary behavior. But again, when looking at even my most voluntary behavior, I see no evidence of free will. You can deliberate about something for hours. What you finally do at the end of that process of deliberation, let's say you're deciding between, you're deciding whether to marry your boyfriend or not. It doesn't matter how long you think about that. This could be the most deliberative decision of your life. What finally swings the balance between yes and no is, in principle, mysterious subjectively and is arising out of causes and conditions that you did not create. You know, if you love this man's smile, you didn't create your love for it. You love it precisely to the degree that you do. You didn't create his smile in the first place, right? That's pretty clear. You didn't create its effect on you, right? You didn't create that this is something you care about, okay? And so it is with everything else that you like or dislike about this person. Your associations with marriage, how important it is to you, how idealistic you are about it, how urgently you feel you have to enter into it at this point in your life, the advice you get from friends and family, its effect on you or lack thereof. All of these dials are getting tuned by forces that you can't see, did not engineer, and cannot control. And even your moments of apparent control, right? The moment where you, you finally feel that you're taking the reins of your mind 
and doing something. Well, that, again, just arises out of background causes that you can't inspect and which are moving you to the precise degree that they are for reasons that are inscrutable. So, you know, I've talked about free will a lot. I've written a short book on it. There are uh, talks that I've given on the topic online. I see no basis for the concept to be applied to any description of causation, mental or physical, we can come up with. So I really think it is one of these philosophical problems that should just disappear. And in its place, we find that more or less everything we care about is still preserved. And as I argue in my book and, and elsewhere, I think a few good things happen to our ethics. The main one being that there is no longer a rational basis for hating people. There's still a rational basis for compassion, and there's still a rational basis for a wise fear of dangerous people that could cause you to lock them up or even kill them in certain circumstances. But there is no basis for hating people, and that's, um, that's something I've spoken about at length elsewhere. Can you talk about the distinction between an intellectual understanding of the self-illusion and an experience of no self? And this is from Clyde Rathbone. Yeah, well, understanding it intellectually, which is to say conceptually, is interesting and useful, but does not at all demand that one experience self-transcendence or egolessness or non-dual awareness. I mean, these are all synonyms for the same experience. The understanding doesn't dictate that you would experience this directly. You can understand that there's no place in the brain for a self to be hiding, that just neuroanatomically, there's no spot where everything comes together in an unchanging way for a stable entity, kind of homunculus that could be hiding there. Everything is just process. Everything is, is a, a kind of neurophysiological cascade uh, happening everywhere at once in the brain. So there's just, just no unchanging unitary self carried through from moment to moment. So there's that brain-based criticism of the idea. And there are many other ways to see this conceptually. The self that people feel they have is piecemeal. It's always changing and never found and always interrupted. And when you look inside yourself, this is something that David Hume pointed out, and this is a very Buddhist way of considering it. It's when you look inside yourself, all you find are the changing contents of consciousness. You find thoughts and moods and sensations and a flow of experience that never conforms to this idea of an unchanging self. And it's very hard to conceptually understand what this self could consist of. It seems paradoxical. It seems like it's very much of a piece with the illusion of free will. Free will doesn't make any sense conceptually, and yet people feel that they have it. And that has always posed, or seemed to pose, this insoluble philosophical problem. We know we have it. We know we have a self. We know we have a self that is free to exercise its will in each moment. And yet, we can't get this experience to conceptually gel with our description of the world. Because the world does not admit of there being an unchanging rider on the horse of consciousness. All there are are causes and conditions bringing forward mental and physical events. You can't step into the same river twice in some basic sense as a mind. So this has always been a problem conceptually, but people have assumed that it is, is such an obvious and unchanging fact of the mind that what we have is a paradox. 
But it's not an obvious and unchanging fact of the mind if you turn the mind upon itself and look more closely at the nature of thought, how it arises as a process, and look for the thinker of the thoughts, look for the one that is appropriating experience in each moment, look for the seer of what is being seen, the knower of what is being known, and you turn attention upon itself. The name for this gesture is meditation. And in my book, Waking Up, and in the video associated with that book, I talk at length about how to do this systematically. And um, as I said before, I'm now designing a, an app to help facilitate this process. But you can, through meditation, actually disconfirm subjectively the existence of a stable self or the, the freedom of will you imagine that it has and um, cut through this illusion. And, and that is, yes, that is different than understanding that it is an illusion conceptually or has no obvious basis in fact. What do you think about the recent deplatforming of Richard Dawkins by the Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism? Well, I, I haven't followed it very closely. I saw what they wrote. I saw Richard's response to what they wrote. You know, frankly, I think this is just an idiotic trend that always reflects badly on the organization doing the deplatforming. I mean, inevitably, they're caving in to some political correctness or paranoia, and their behavior says virtually nothing about the person who's now being denied a platform. And to invite someone, especially someone of Richard's stature, and then disinvite him over a tweet is just ridiculous. Listen to the rationale used by the Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism. The Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism has withdrawn its invitation to Richard Dawkins to participate at NECSS 2016. That's their conference. We have taken this action in response to Dr. Dawkins' approving retweet of a highly offensive video. Now, this video was not highly offensive. It just wasn't good. If Richard is anything like me, I'm sure he's inundated with people urging him to retweet their YouTube video. There are secularists and atheists who are struggling to get noticed who continually hurl things our way, and um, we often forward these things, and it, these videos are of varying quality. Now, I looked at the video that Richard forwarded there, and I wouldn't have forwarded it because I, you know, I didn't think it was a good video, but you know, I, I'm sure I have forwarded things that are every bit as poorly executed as that video was. The point of the video was to criticize the synergy that we've all noticed between feminism and Islamism. It's a very unhappy synergy where you have feminists who are not taking the side of women treated badly in the Muslim community, but taking the side of the thugs who would treat them badly. Back to this press release. We believe strongly in freedom of speech and freedom to express unpopular and even offensive views. However, unnecessarily divisive, counterproductive, and even hateful speech runs contrary to our mission and the environment we wish to foster. The sentiments expressed in the video do not represent the values of NECSS or its sponsoring organizations. Great. Score a victory for the paranoia engendered by social media here. Uh, Stephen Novella. Uh, the neurologist who was on the uh, committee that made this decision wrote a long justification of it uh, online, which you can read. 
And um, I won't read that, but he revealed that inviting Richard was already quite controversial for this organization, and that they, they, they were essentially poised to disinvite him, even in the act of inviting him. And I, I think his uh, mealy-mouthed defense of the deplatforming testifies to uh, many of the problems in the atheist, secular community at the moment. But I'd like to read Richard's response to being disinvited, which he posted on his foundation's website. Statement by Richard Dawkins on NECSS. I woke this morning to see a public announcement that my invitation to speak at NECSS 2016 had been withdrawn by the executive committee. I do not write this out of concern about my appearance or non-appearance at NECSS, but I wish there had been a friendly conversation before such unilateral action was taken. It is possible I could have allayed the committee members' concerns, or if not, at least we could have talked through their objections to my tweet. If our community is about anything, it is that reasoned discussion is the best way to work through disagreements. I might mention that before receiving any word from any CSS, I had already deleted the tweet to which they objected. I did it purely because I was told that the video referenced a real woman who had been threatened on earlier occasions because of YouTube videos in which she appeared to her disadvantage. I have no knowledge of the authenticity of the alleged death and rape threats, but to delete my tweet seemed the safest and most humane course of action. I have always condemned violence and threats of violence, for example in this tweet, which I also posted the day before the NECSS decision. And in the tweet he says, please, please, please don't ever threaten anyone with violence. We should be free to use comedy slash ridicule without fear it may inspire violence. I wish the NECSS every success at their conference. The science and skepticism community is too small and too important to let disagreements divide us and divert us from our mission of promoting a more critical and scientifically literate world. If ever there were a diplomatic response to being deplatformed without any discussion over a tweet, uh, there it is. Uh, honestly, I, I see no reason for Richard to have been that diplomatic. I certainly don't feel like being that diplomatic on his behalf. I just think these people are fools, and their treatment of Richard is shameful and embarrassing, and uh, let this go down in the annals of douchebaggery as something not to do when you decide to have a conference that you hope intelligent people will attend. Everyone has to grow thicker skins, right? Universities and secular groups, and we just have to let people think out loud and um, do their best to make sense. And if their thoughts offend you, or if they forward the thoughts of others that offend you, well, then talk about it. I mean, it seems to me this is the effect that identity politics is having on our intellectual life, or one of its many effects. And it's, um, as you would predict, an unhealthy one. Next question. I'm curious to know your economic perspective. You have seldom commented on this topic other than saying that you wish taxes to be raised on the rich. What, in your view, are the moral highs and lows of free market and socialist economies? I understand this question may be oversimplified, but I would like any comments you have on this subject. This is from Dylan Grice. Well, you know, I actually have written a few blog posts on wealth inequality, mainly, and those can be found on my blog. I think the first one is entitled How Rich is Too Rich. I think that's the first one. Anyway, they're all sort of linked to one another. And I think I wrote about this back in 2010 or thereabouts. You know, I, I think wealth inequality is a real problem, 
And I think socialism is a, in the extreme, is a failed response to that problem. It's not to say we don't need a social safety net. I think we do. And I think we need an increasingly strong one. And the reason for that is, I think, ultimately, technology, if it works, will reduce the need for human labor in a way that it never has quite accomplished before. I think, I mean, this this now goes to the topic of artificial intelligence. Ultimately, if we manage to build truly labor-saving devices, you know, devices that don't simply just open up a space for new forms of human labor, but devices that actually cancel the need for human labor, and I think we're doing that, then you really have this the, the ultimate recipe for an intolerable degree of wealth inequality. There are ways in which this can be mitigated by, you know, some democratizing force, you know, where everyone has access to this technology. But I think ultimately we need something like a universal basic income. Uh, There has to be some way to distribute this kind of technological wealth more fairly to the rest of the world. And how you do that is the difficult question, but that you need to do that at some point uh, seems to me to be a very easy question. And it it becomes especially easy if you imagine it in the extreme case uh, where we have the ultimate labor-saving technology. I mean, just imagine we have built the ultimate nano technology run by perfect artificial intelligence. So you have, you know, some kind of gray goo that can self-assemble into anything we want it to be. Any machine, any machine process can be built from scratch, molecule by molecule, so cheaply that basically it can all be done for the cost of raw materials, right? It's all powered by sunlight. This, on some level, is possible if we don't destroy ourselves in the interim. Imagine we accomplish this. Imagine we're handed this perfect technology that saves all human labor. You know, you don't need anyone working anywhere to produce anything. And the smartest minds doing the design work are now machine minds. And we're all left with the freedom now to what? Well, in our current political order, it will be the freedom to starve and fight civil wars over these resources. So we need to get this right. We need a system that can absorb the ultimate breakthrough in labor-saving technology because the breakthroughs are coming incrementally. So we're still hard-pressed to understand how we're going to absorb self-driving cars once they become not only available but mandatory given the numbers of lives they will save. And this is coming on on a thousand fronts. So we, we need to design a world and a political order where when there is no labor left to do necessarily, and we're all just free to create art and enjoy the creations of others and play frisbee and live in paradise, we have to be able to do that. And the only way to do that is to have a political and economic order that shares the wealth to some significant degree. And universal basic income is, is the best idea I've heard so far on that topic. Next question. Your latest collaboration with Majinawas is brilliant and timely. I am, however, concerned about your lack of acknowledgement of the factors of the long-time intrusion of Western powers into the Middle East and the effect these military and corporate intrusions have on the people of the region. I've been a follower of the likes of Noam Chomsky and Michael Parenti and Howard Zinn long before being introduced to you. And he goes on to talk about their influence. Um, I've always... felt that your ideas intersect without conflict with most of the ideas of these people, 
yet I know there's a professional and sometimes personal conflict between you and some of them. I see the sources of behavior of extreme Islam coming out of many different places, global capitalism, military action, culture, religion, and I could not guess which is the most important, but I see each of them as having a significant role. So my question to you is, does your dismissal of the matters of corporatism and imperialism come from believing that they are insignificant factors in the conflict we are having with Islam, extreme Islam, or is it a tactical reaction to the lack of voice given to critiquing extreme Islam and its destructive effects? Or am I asking the question in a wrong way? This is from Dean Richard. Uh, no, good question. And um, I agree with you that, as you say, my ideas intersect without conflict with most of the ideas of those people. And that's why I've said, you know, when I initially criticized Chomsky in The End of Faith, I said, you can accept 90% of what he's saying and still follow the plot here with respect to jihadism and with respect to the role of religion generally in the lives of people. And there are some ways in which I do agree with him uh, and think that the behavior of the U.S. government and U.S. corporations has been appalling. If you want to see an instance of that, listen to my interview on this podcast with Joshua Oppenheimer about his films, The Act of Killing and The Look of Silence, which detailed our horrible support for a genocide in Indonesia. Yeah, my lack of focus on those topics is due to two things. One is, I think we are now living in a time where a belief in what you're calling extreme Islam, and in particular in the doctrines around jihad and martyrdom and blasphemy and apostasy and expectation of paradise, all of these ideas are sufficient to produce the most destructive and intolerable behavior. They're sufficient to produce ISIS. They're sufficient to produce a foreign-born and otherwise completely inexplicable support for a group like ISIS. And we can't ignore that problem. Yes, there are many other problems in the world. And depending on who you're talking about, these problems can be exaggerated. You know, I think describing the U.S. and Britain as the most evil forces on earth is absolutely delusional and dangerous and masochistic and leads nowhere worth going. Uh, I mean, just imagine electing a president who believed that the U.S. and Britain were the most evil actors in human history or in recent history. It's just you want someone who agrees with Chomsky on that topic. So, you know, I don't agree with the underlying claim, but any particular piece of this puzzle is worth talking about and focusing on. I have, I have just been worried that people have been deluding themselves about the link between religious belief and behavior. And in many cases, it is in fact the only thing that explains the behavior. Again, I'm, I'm not denying that jihadists sometimes have actual political grievances that are rational. Uh, there's that too. But that doesn't get you ISIS. That doesn't get you people who have no rational demands. That doesn't get you Boko Haram that's just killing school children because they're going to school, right? That's not a normal political grievance. There you're talking about the, the influence of religious extremism on the human mind. And you can see this in, in miniature in, in cults. Now listen to the podcast I did on Heaven's Gate, right? And, and watch those exit interviews with those well-educated and apparently happy people just before they committed suicide expecting to wind up on a spacecraft following the comet Hale-Bopp. 
and ask yourself, why did they do what they did? Was it because they were politically oppressed? Was there some foreign policy infraction that had just gotten under their skin and drove them to this? No, they had specific beliefs that they articulated ad nauseum, and in light of those beliefs, their behavior made perfect sense, right? That is the problem we are facing with jihadism. And it's not to say that there aren't other problems in the world, and there's not to say there aren't other problems of our own making. But if you're going to lose sight of this fact, that some people believe in paradise and want to get there, you are going to be mystified and constantly vulnerable in the presence of these people. So it, it, it is a matter of emphasis for me. But sometimes emphasis is everything. And when you get Noam Chomsky talking about how we're the most evil people on earth, and the most important thing for us to do morally is to take responsibility for our evil rather than resist creeping theocracy that is destabilizing dozens of countries at this moment. That seems to me to be purely crazy. Yes, feel free to spend some time looking inward at your own misogyny, right? But if you really care about women, you know, it's, it's the little girls who are getting bullets in their heads for going to school or their faces burned off with battery acid for leaving their husbands. That's real misogyny. It's not the stray remark about Hillary's hairdo that you should be worried about. In any case, that's the way I see it. Next question. Whatever happened to your podcast with Omer Aziz? Um, well, this probably merits a longish answer because I, I announced this podcast and it's not coming. Now, Omer is a, a young Muslim writer who's getting his law degree at Yale. And uh, he wrote this truly blistering review of my book with Madrid for Salon. And we got thrown together on Twitter, and I, I rather impetuously invited him on my podcast in the hopes that we would have a, a useful conversation. And, um, you know, unfortunately, we didn't manage it. We spoke for nearly four hours, and it was a terrible conversation. And unfortunately, it was terrible in a way that wasn't at all interesting. So rather than inflict this boredom on you, I decided to cut my losses and just move on. So in my view, it was a cautionary tale. And the crazy thing about this conversation is that here was a person who basically agrees with me and Majid on the core issues. I mean, Omar claims to be a, a free speech supporter unconditionally, and he's not one of those people like Glenn Greenwald who, who says this and then goes on to denounce the Charlie Hebdo cartoonists for their racism, for instance. And Omar even disavows the identity politics that are, are practiced by so many Muslims and groups like the, the Council of American Islamic Relations. Uh, though rather ominously, he was quite certain that racism is now the greatest problem on earth. And I'm pretty sure that if I went down that rabbit hole with him, we would have met the motherload of identity politics. But um, the, the fact that we made so little headway was a bit of a mystery to me. And I mean, he didn't even seem to be religious. And he claimed to support all the liberal reforms that Majid supports. I mean, he's, he thinks that the the texts need to be reinterpreted in the same way that Majid argues they should be to allow for pluralism and tolerance and secularism. But you know, the guy had a chip on his shoulder the size of Saudi Arabia, and I just found him impossible to talk to. So, I mean, without beating him up too much in his absence, you know, I can just give you a sense of how painful this conversation was. I spent nearly an hour at the beginning of the conversation trying to correct Omer's impression that Majid and I wrote our book just to make a pile of money, right? I mean, both in his salon interview and in a subsequent podcast, 
he claimed that our publishing on the topic of Islam and Islamic reform was nothing but, quote, a get-rich-quick scheme. Okay. And it was clear from his article that this is how he views Majid's entire career as a reformer, and even Ayan Hirsi Ali's life as an apostate and as a hunted woman. So I spent nearly an hour, I'm, I'm not exaggerating, it was like 50 minutes, trying to perform an exorcism on this idiotic idea, with nothing to show for it. I mean, this would have been the most boring hour in the history of podcasts. But the reason why I stayed on this topic so long was pretty simple. This was an absolutely clear case in which Omer was wrong. Okay? He had no information about my or Majid's or Ayan's motives or finances or the other opportunities we forego by spending our time worrying about Islamic reform. But I do, right? He knew nothing about book publishing or about which books sell well and why, and he had no idea when I get paid to speak and when I don't. I have all the facts here, and I felt that if I couldn't reason him out of this utterly cynical and uncharitable and unfounded belief about me and Majid, to say nothing of getting him to see what an offensively stupid claim it was to make about Ayan, okay, then any attempt to talk about more complicated issues like the conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians would be doomed. And the truth is that focusing on Islam, to any degree, alienates a significant percentage of my core audience. Most of you are sick to death of me talking about this issue, and you tell me this, right? I mean, there's almost no one in my core audience of people who love my work on ethics or free will or consciousness or meditation or the brain basis of any of these things, or want to hear my conversations with scientists and philosophers, or want, want me to move on to new topics scientifically or philosophically. Okay, there's almost no one in this audience who wants me to spend more time reiterating my concerns about Islam. Okay, and yet Omer was absolutely sure that I'm pandering to a huge audience of people who just want to hear me disparage Islam all over again. And he was absolutely sure that this is the most lucrative thing I do. And I pointed out things like publishing a short book for Harvard University Press for no advance isn't an especially lucrative thing to do. Running a counter-extremism think tank is not the most lucrative thing Majid could be doing. I mean, okay, so, so while he paid lip service in his review to Ayan deserving some sympathy, right, for the way she's been persecuted by theocrats, he still cynically implied that her work as a critic of the very ideology that produced such misery for her is purely opportunistic and driven by a desire to make money. Okay, I, I mean, just think about this. Ayan starts out as an uneducated Somali girl who doesn't speak a word of Dutch, and in a few short years she gets a degree in political science and becomes a member of parliament who speaks half a dozen languages. Okay. You realize there are other things she can do in life if she just wants to get ahead and make money beyond pissing off a mob of religious maniacs, okay. and then having to suffer not only their threats, but the condescending stupidity of critics who don't have a fraction of the courage she has, haven't suffered any of the abuse she has haven't taken any of the risks she has, but who then decide that it's probably a good idea to make her situation even more dangerous by attacking her as a bigot. I mean, you want to talk about opportunism. The opportunism is on the side of the Islamists at the Council of American-Islamic Relations who try to get Ayan deplatformed and blacklisted at universities everywhere and pretend that she, you know, one of the most persecuted public intellectuals in living memory, is the one infringing on the civil rights of others. But I got absolutely nowhere with Omer on this topic. 
We just went round and round and round. And again, I, this was incredibly boring because I just, I felt that we had to drill down on this. If I couldn't get him to admit that he was mistaken about the purely mercenary motives of all involved here, it was hopeless. And all I got were silly dodges and digressions and pseudo points. Okay? And he would say things like, well, you've sold some books, haven't you? So see, you've made money attacking Islam, right? As though that justified his underlying allegation that Majid and I are engaged in a get-rich-quick scheme of arguing for Islamic reform. So I, I really think I gave Omer every opportunity to reason in good faith on this topic. And I wasn't after an apology. I just wanted him to concede that he didn't actually have any information about my and Majid's motives for writing our book apart from the ones we've clearly stated and which he chose to disbelieve and disparage. In addition to claiming that we're just in the Islamic reform racket for the money, he was also calling us liars, right? So, so we did not get off to a good start. This is the more general problem. Everyone on the regressive left imagines he's a mind reader. You know, I say what I think and why I think it, and my opponents claim I think something else and for different reasons. When your criticism of another person's view depends on your powers of telepathy, you've got a problem. You've got two problems, in fact. You've got an intellectual problem, you're very likely wrong, and you've got a social problem in that you're guaranteed to piss people off. And when you're determined, as Omer was, to hold someone accountable to your assumptions about them, or to what you thought they meant in the past, or to what you need them to have meant for your slander of them to be valid, rather than what they are saying and working to clarify in conversation with you in the present, you're not actually engaging with their views, much less refuting them. Okay, you're, you're just defending your misunderstanding. And when your overriding goal in a conversation is to not let your opinion change, even slightly, about the other person or about anything else, you're only pretending to have a conversation. And I felt I ran into this basic insincerity with Omer again and again. So it was one of the least satisfying conversations I've had in a long time. And while I did consider airing it, I mean, just as evidence of how hard it can be to talk about these things, in case there weren't enough evidence of that in the universe already, in the end, I just couldn't bear to put out a three-and-a-half-hour podcast that I knew would bore people to death. As I was talking to Omer, I feared I was wasting my time more or less every minute of the conversation. And at the end of the conversation, it was absolutely clear that I had, in fact, wasted my time. And I don't see any obligation to then waste yours as well. So that's where I left it. You know, some conversations just don't work out. But um, it gave me a... Uh, an immense respect for Majid, as you might imagine, because I went into that conversation with no guarantee that it was going to go well. And uh, in him, I found a, both a friend and a collaborator, but I'm sorry to say he strikes me as a, a rare person, and we need a hundred million people just like him. Sorry if that went on too long, but I expect that I have not heard the last of Omer for um, not airing our conversation. But being boring is the, the one unforgivable sin in this space. And uh, boy, were we both boring. Next question. I've read your book, Waking Up, and I've tried to follow your instructions on how to meditate, but I really cannot do it. I have a chattering mind that won't shut up, and I find it impossible to arrest my thought. I do not doubt that meditation would be good for me, and I dearly wish that I could experience its benefits, but I cannot do it. So my question is, do you think there are people in the world who cannot learn to meditate? 
just as there are tone-deaf people who cannot learn a musical instrument, and still others who will never learn to sing. Take someone like Christopher Hitchens. Did you ever discuss meditation with him? And if so, was he even teachable in this regard? My sense is that people who are drawn to meditation are neurologically inclined to such practices. By contrast, those conflicted and disputatious souls who are more inclined to find solace in literature never really master the art of meditation. I would love to be proven wrong, but please tell me your thoughts. This is from uh, John Askin. Um, I don't think I ever spoke to Hitch about meditation, and I don't know that he ever tried it, so I don't know really anything on that topic. You know, everyone finds it difficult. Virtually everyone finds it difficult, especially in the beginning. And it is just simply a fact that your experience of meditating for the longest time, and probably for the rest of your life, will be one of continually noticing that you're lost in thought and then coming back to the object of meditation, whether that's your breath or the arising of thoughts themselves or just kind of a wide open awareness of whatever you can notice, sounds, sensations, moods, whatever you're trying to focus on, that project will be continually interrupted by your automatically and unwittingly identifying with the next thought that arises in consciousness. So the thing you have to do at the outset is just accept that this is the character of your mind and be willing to begin again. All you're going to be doing is is starting over and over again. If you sit down and want to meditate for an hour, you will be interrupted a thousand times in that hour by thought. And it's not a, it's not a matter of suppressing thought. It's not a matter of getting to some place where you no longer think. I mean, those experiences can happen, but those are that's not the goal of meditation. Ultimately, the goal is to see thoughts as thoughts and recognize what consciousness is like prior to them, and even in their very midst as they're recognized. And you can do that. You can get there even with a mind that is more or less continuously bombarded by thoughts. You just need enough mindfulness to keep coming back. And um, again, I'm, I'm going to build an app to help with this because I, you know, I think guided meditation is very useful. It's especially useful in the beginning, but it's, it's useful for anyone. It's still useful for me. Having someone in your ear remind you that you're supposed to be paying attention is just a device to help you break the spell of identification with thought in a moment when you weren't otherwise going to break it yourself. So it's, um, it's a very useful thing to do to listen to guided meditations, and there are many available online. Uh, I have two online, but there are you know, many others, and I, I, will, I will announce my app once it's available. And there are other good apps that can help in this regard. There's um, the app Calm, and there's uh, Headspace, and there's the one my friends Dan Harris and Joseph Goldstein produced, 10% Happier, which is also great. So I recommend you just experiment and see which one you like. But perhaps most important, you just have to recognize that having a mind that never gets distracted, a mind without thought, is a false goal. What you want is to notice this next thought as it arises in consciousness, as an appearance and to not necessarily feel psychologically implicated in it. It's just another piece of language or image. And you can do that. And your ability to do that in a meaningful way will not necessarily be heralded 
by a total change in the character of your mind. In fact, it's very unlikely to be for most people. Well, I've rattled on here for over an hour. Thank you for your questions. I didn't move through them in any kind of systematic way, so if your question did not get answered, it is not a sign that I read it and decided it was not among the worthy. I very likely didn't read it. I, I get inundated whenever I go out on social media asking for questions. I just can't take the time to properly read them all, much less vet them. Uh, maybe I'll find a more intelligent way to do this on Reddit or somewhere else in the future where you guys can decide what the best questions are. That may be the, the right approach. Coming up on the podcast, I'm going to have Michael Weiss, the editor and writer for The Daily Beast. We're going to talk about mostly the conflict in Syria, I would imagine. Uh, he knows a lot about that. And I will also speak to Mariam Namazi soon. And uh, Jonathan Haidt is coming up, the psychologist with whom I've had um, collisions in the past. And he and I agree about much, but disagree about much. And so that uh, should be interesting. And once again, if you find yourself in a position to review this podcast on iTunes, uh, that is helpful. So let me encourage you to do that. And uh, thanks again for listening. Until next time.